grace and mercy to you and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was pierced for our transgressions and risen again for our justification. Amen. If someone were to ask you, what is God like? How would you answer that question? Depending on what comes to mind first, you might give a completely different answer than I would. You might also give a different answer than the person next to you. I think it's a hard question to answer in many ways because the Bible pictures God in such a diverse number of images, settings, and stories. It's like trying to grab a hold of a balloon and you squeeze out one part and then the other part blows up. Because you know you can't say it all at once. And I can't say it all in a sermon. And so people will quote that part of the scripture that maybe they're thinking the most about. Sometimes it's people challenging God and saying, well, this is a God who makes war. Sometimes it's people uh, remembering the comfort of God. This is the God who is a shepherd. Even in God's own description of his character in Exodus 34, he reveals to us it's a mystery we can't fully understand. When he says, I'm gracious and merciful, abounding in loving kindness and steadfast love and truth. And then in the next breath he says, but I do not clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So which is, is he forgiving and loving or is he just and powerful? And the answer, of course, is yes. As we try to look at the scriptures and discover who is God, we've come to the book of Revelation, which is the final word. And if it's the final word that the Spirit wants to give us, then perhaps it's worth ending with that final word, that final vision, no matter what you say, that somehow the conversation ends up here in the end, in the end of our conversation and in the end of our lives, in the end of all human history, it's going to end up here, a picture of Jesus. As we read earlier the one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden belt. His hair is like white wool. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. And his voice is like the sound of a rushing waterfall. The task of keeping Christ central is increasingly difficult. Eugene Peterson writes, It is very easy to remove Christ from the center and give him an honored place in a religious hall of fame, along with Buddha, Moses, and Muhammad. In other words, if Christ is nothing more than a historical figure, if he's nothing more than a piece of information from a book written a long time ago, then what good is he to us today? 
And so many Christians, in a sense, have retired his jersey. They've they put it up on the wall. And remember when he did that thing? And remember when he was teaching and saying those great things? Wasn't he a great person? We, we should retire his jersey alongside all the religious great figures in history. But that's not the Jesus that we're confronted with in the book of Revelation. And so it is important for us to tell the whole story, including letting God have the final word, which is what the book of Revelation is all about, the final word on Jesus. That was one of the issues that I ran into when I was considering the Super Bowl ad. So during the Super Bowl, there was an ad run that maybe some of you saw called He Gets Us. It's an ad campaign that's been going on for a couple years now, and it was uh, the set. It, it first put out an ad last year in the Super Bowl about uh, hate and how Jesus understands people who are hated, and this time it put out another ad, spent you know millions of dollars, and it's about uh, love and how Jesus taught love. So the ad has various images, and there's music in the background, and the images are paintings that go from one to the next to the next. There's a figure, uh, in every one of these pictures, somebody is washing somebody else's feet. There's a white policeman and washing the feet of a young black man. There's a grandmother washing the feet of a young girl outside an abortion clinic. There's a husband and wife washing the feet of a Muslim neighbor. There's a priest, and then this is the last picture, is a priest washing the foot of a man who's dressed like a woman. They explain this caption with the words, we began to imagine a world where ideological others were willing to set aside their differences and wash one another's feet. He gets us. Now, I've been very interested in this campaign, and I, in fact, was, I would say, very much in support of putting it out there to a culture that knows next to nothing about Jesus to say, here is our Savior who serves us and loves us and washes our feet, who indeed goes to places of suffering, places of hate, lives that are broken, and meets people right where they are in the midst of the chaos, uncertainty, and loneliness. And I think that is the message of the gospel to a point. But as we said about the balloon, if you squeeze one part too tightly, you're going to expand and even explode the other part. It's difficult because we need, we know there's more to the story. Now, the Super Bowl ad was successful in that it sparked a lot of discussion. And if you want to get people talking about Jesus, I mean, could that be a bad thing? Indeed, it it's good to get us to wake up out of maybe preconceived boxes that we put Jesus in and to break down some of those boxes and barriers and see what do the scriptures picture him as. 
But you can't leave the story there. If the gospel is nothing more than setting aside differences, then what does Jesus mean to us today? And what is the rest of the story? Where, where do you go from here after you wash the person's feet? That's the question I had, and then I'm confronted with this image in the book of Revelation. And we're not just retiring Jesus because he was a great person. We're not just retiring his jersey because he was a superstar in preaching and teaching religion and love. If God wants to have the final say on who Jesus is, what image will he use? Will he have Jesus as a shepherd? Will he have Jesus as the word? Jesus as the vine? Jesus as the door? Jesus on the cross with the crown of thorns? But instead, he draws us to the book of Daniel. And he says, there's one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds, riding on the clouds of heaven. He pictures this amazing Jesus that in many ways we can't even fully break down in one sermon what every one of the pieces of this image are indicating. But we know it's big. And so one writer said, this is one reason why I find the incarnation compelling. For in the figure of Jesus Christ, there is something that escapes us. He has been the subject of the greatest efforts to systemize the history of man. But anyone who's ever tried this has, in the end, had to admit the seams keep bursting. Sooner or later, we discover that we are in touch, not with a pale Galilean, but with a towering and furious figure who will not be managed. So there are two things we have to hold together and before I get to the text, I want to make sure that we are holding these two things together because you can't say it all at once. On the one hand, we need to see Christ as the humble, human, helping, healing, and hated Savior. See Jesus in all of his humiliation as the one who was pierced, which is why John says they will look on the one they pierced. <clears throat> to make sure that we are indeed being honest about who Jesus was on earth and where he went and what he did and said, because he wasn't like religious leaders that we've ever known. In fact, this is what shocked and even appalled the people of his day. That Jesus would call himself the Son of Man is a reference to the book of Daniel. And if you were in Bible class, you know we, we looked at this in more depth. The book of Daniel chapter 7 says that there will be one like a son of man, a human, who will come on the clouds of heaven, and to him will be given all the kingdoms of this earth, all power, glory, authority, dominion, and his people will worship him. And then comes this Galilean, a pale Galilean, who comes to people who are suffering, people who are lost, people who are broken, and he eats and he drinks and he has fellowship with them. It is so shocking and scandalous 
that this one who is the son of man, pictured in Daniel as having glory, would have dinner with a prostitute, would have lunch with a tax collector, would bless and spend his time talking to children, would be helping losers, would be healing lepers, would be refusing to accept comfortable living space, but would also be refusing insurrection to lead a rebellion to change things. And when he says, who do they say that I am? They're all confused. They don't really understand because the Son of Man doesn't appear in his glory like they expected. He doesn't just come to earth and with a magic wave of his wand make everything glorious for us as people. Instead, he goes and lives and walks alongside people who have lives that are anything but glorious and ends up on a cross because of it. So we have to hold on to what it means that he gets us. That's a valid point. And it's a valid point for us to know that he gets you. He understands. He lived it. He felt it. He suffered it and experienced it. So when you are going through suffering, or when you are trying to reach someone who's suffering, he sympathizes, and he's with you in his humiliation. But to keep Christ central means we don't let the story end there. The story of Jesus cannot end with him pierced. And though he loved these people to the depths of his heart, even who rejected him, we can't leave their story there either, lost in sin. Instead, we continue on. And so there was a second ad that was put out in response to the first ad. A pastor in Ireland put out a video that went viral in response to the He Gets Us ad. And his video was titled, He Saves Us. And in the video, he shows images of real people, not paintings. He shows a gang leader. He shows a prostitute. He shows a criminal. He shows a transgender man. But in every one of the images, it has the word former in front of it. Former gang leader. Former transgender. No longer this, but something else. Because he's pointing out that Jesus, when he comes to visit us in the places of sin, doesn't leave us there. When he visits us in the place of loneliness, in the place of brokenness, in the place of suffering, he doesn't leave us there. When he's pierced for our transgressions, he doesn't stop there. We are not just preaching a gospel that is looking at a historical story that we're supposed to reenact. But we're looking at the living, breathing, risen, glorified, an all-powerful God. And that's what John is trying to say. He's trying to say that he saves us is not in contradiction to he gets us. It's the culmination of it. That Jesus would wash our feet 
and make us clean and die on the cross for us is only the beginning of the story he is trying to tell you about who you are and who you are no longer. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't leave us in those places. It transforms us and leads us to a new place. And that's the Jesus with seven golden lampstands standing around him. The seven churches of Asia Minor. The Christians who are living in a culture that's trying to overshadow everything that Jesus taught and preached. Whether we're reading the Bible reading the gospel, reading the book of Revelation. There's always things trying to elbow their way to the front of the line. And it's so increasingly difficult for us to keep Christ at the center. In the book of Revelation alone, think of all the things trying to elbow Jesus out of the way. Discussions about the end of the world. Are you premillennial or postmillennial, amillennial? The rapture, the Antichrist, numbers and wars and World War III and the war in Ukraine and the war in Israel. And how does this all add up to what the book of Revelation is predicting? And yet, if Christ is not central, we've just elbowed him out of the way. We've retired his jersey and we've moved on to a human view of God's kingdom. And so we hold together the Son of Man in the Gospels, in human form and humility, washing fear and being pierced, with the Son of Man of Daniel 7, who is exalted to the glorious status of God, sitting at the right hand of the throne as king. And that is what John is communicating with his images, clothed with a long robe, with a golden belt around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white, like white wool, like snow. This is the image of Daniel 7, which pictures God on his throne. Not just the Son of Man, but God himself with that wisdom that only God has, that he knows and his knowledge is pure and perfect. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. Only God can see and purify what he sees. And he sees into the heart of every human being to purify what's in your heart because he knows what's there. And he knows the darkness and he knows the sin. And he has a good purpose for looking into your soul and saying, There's a lot we need to talk about. Only God can stand with feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Only God can stand firm when everything else is shaking. And only God has the voice like the pouring down of a waterfall, the rush of many waters. And only God can make war like Jesus does. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun. So in Revelation 1, we have 
Jesus' demeanor. And Jesus' demeanor can be a little bit frightening for us at first. In fact, it needs to be in order to take him seriously and not make him into a puppet of a social cause or political agenda or something that will make us feel good or something that's cultural or countercultural. We have to let him speak. And when John sees what he's like, he falls down as though dead. Are we ready to take Jesus so seriously that when we truly look into what he's done and who he is, we fall down at his feet? We're sinners. We are all sinners. We are all in need of a king who can finally make things right and the things that this world is trying to do about it will never last. And so his demeanor at first is fierce. But it's not without tenderness. As fierce as he is, in trying to show that he is ruling the world with a rod of iron, he touches John with his right hand. He reaches down to this one who's fallen on his face, who knows he's worthless, in front of the glory of God, who knows he has no hope to stand before this almighty figure, and he touches him. He lays his hand on him. He blesses him, and he says, don't be afraid. I've got work for you to do. I'm with you. And this is the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches who have the light of the gospel, all churches who have the light of the gospel. And when he does, he starts to speak. And the message he speaks is serious. It's grave. He commends the churches for what they've done well. He, in fact, encourages them when they've stood the test, when they've remained faithful, when they've even gone out on a limb and risked themselves. And so he can commend the intentions, even of an ad campaign, like he gets us and say, okay, I commend you for putting my name and witness out there to the world, for being willing to risk money, being willing to risk reputation, being willing to risk controversy to get this news of who I am out there. But then he goes on with his message and says, but I have something against you. And so in the seven churches, he also rebukes, he reforms, he corrects, and he says, repent, or I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Repent, or I'm going to take away your lampstand. Repent, or I'm going to leave you to your own destruction. Remember the love you've abandoned and do the works you did at first. So Jesus is serious about it and he calls us to repentance. And then he ends his message, commendation, reformation, and finally motivation. And he gives a promise. And at the end of every one of the letters, the seven messages to the seven churches, he says, to the one who overcomes, I have a gift. Don't give up. I am with you. Continue on in the fight. Repent 
Don't obsess about the things you've done wrong. Don't psychoanalyze yourself to death till there's nothing left but you thinking about you. Instead, set your eyes on me. Set your eyes on the future. Set your eyes on the end of all history. And you'll see ones like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. As Peterson also put it, life is too short to be small. We're going into an election year. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's world powers and ideologies. There's media interests and corruption. There's religious beliefs and truth claims being made about your body, about your sexuality, about life in the womb. And if we're not careful, every one of these things is going to elbow its way to the front until there's really little to no Jesus left in our imagination. And so the book of Revelation is meant to be preached to a Christian who is in prison, a Christian who is exiled, a Christian who is being silenced, a Christian like John, who is threatened with execution because of what he's preaching. And he says, we have hope. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'll close with this prayer from St. Patrick of Ireland. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Amen.